So Alex Marcon was the guest, is the guest uh, for the episode today. I interviewed him in the middle of last year, so the middle of 2020, uh, just specifically about what his COVID-19 portfolio was. So Alex and I have known each other for a very long time. We went to school together and a um, it came to my attention through some of the boys' chit-chat that Alex had made uh, just a ton of money on some really obscure bet that he made uh, just as the... Um, entire world's economy sort of crashed as the coronavirus and the implications of it became more well known internationally. So I forget the exact month, whether it was March or April, February, March or April, whenever that initial crash was, Alex had some sort of bet on that. Um, He profited really well off. And we've sort of stayed in touch since because he is like, he's real sharp. He's very smart and he keeps, and he doesn't get distracted by much of the noise in the news. Like he, he you know, he, he's really just interested in sort of more of the finer details that aren't as sexy and aren't the sort of things that the rest of us are really that interested in. You know, like he, uh, for, for instance, he goes on a riff here about sort of Chinese accounting methods. And it's like, that's, these are the sort of small details that are really only analysts kind of get into. Um, but for Alex, and totally to his credit, and super interesting to hear him talk about it, uh, he has been educating himself on it a lot. So he gave us some cool insights in this episode into China. Um, maybe, I suppose, some of the kind of the, the economic wool pull that China might be uh, pulling on the world. Perhaps they're not the economic superpower that both their internal and external propaganda promotes. Um, but um, then Alex and I will also talk about sort of infinite stimulus, a transference of geopolitical power potentially, so, sort of interesting stuff. Um, and yeah, I think I think it was a cool chat. So really like uh, Mark on. Look, just a quick one before I start. I also do a podcast on Nassim Taleb. Now, maybe you've heard of him, maybe you haven't. Look, Nassim Taleb, he speaks about the kind of ideas that can actually fundamentally change your worldview. He's an incredibly interesting guy. So if you're interested, there's going to be a link to my Nassim Taleb podcast. Now, it's an entire podcast talking about the concepts uh, and ideas that come from Nassim Taleb. So download that if you're keen. Um, It'd be cool. Subscribe, five stars, reviews, all the good stuff. Pump your good juice into the algorithm because that is how they know to promote these sort of podcasts. And the main reason just to promote it is so the podcast can sort of be validated and we can get on really, really, really cool guests because the sort of people that I uh, really want to have on this podcast, they're not the typical newly published authors who are just doing the rounds, you know, Um, for instance... Seth Godin is on everything. Ryan Holiday is on everything. Matthew McConaughey is on everything. The mainstream podcast space kind of feels like it's it's just becoming overly commercialized. The publisher is reaching out to the big podcast and saying, hey, can you have our guy on? Maybe we'll pay you something. Maybe you get a percentage of the book sold from the affiliate link. Whatever it is, um, I think that I, I've made a very long list of people that I would really just love to interview. And a lot of them are definitely going to be relatively obscure, but I think are just super interesting. But anyway, I'm really uh, rambling on here. So pump your good juice into the algorithm. That's all I want to leave you with. And here's Alex. So it's the morning over here in Sweden, the nighttime over there in Sydney, here with Alex Markon, a bit of a financial whiz, a, uh, a hobby expert in financial markets and also a professional in financial markets as well. But we got him on today because he has some really cool insights into China, but not from any nonsense 
takes, but from a almost financial take. What is China? What is China doing with their money? And also the uh, a bit of an explanation for what is just generally happening in financial markets as well. Does that sound about right, Alex? Yeah, it sounds good. Yeah. Um, so yeah, with China, China's really interesting because they're such a a black box of an economy that you it's really hard to sort of peer in from the outside at what's really going on and um a sort of speculation about yeah what exactly is going on but to to view china it's a lot different to our sort of westernized economy because they do a lot of different things a lot of different accounting practice a lot of different um policies and um uh something that's really important is that you have this impossible trinity in economics where uh, developing economies traditionally will have what, like uh, two out of these three. So there's one, an independent monetary policy where they will follow their own sort of uh, rate regime. They won't follow any other country. Two is a fixed exchange rate. So they'll peg their currency traditionally to the US dollar. And then three is a... Um, uh, open capital account. So China themselves have a fairly closed capital account. Um, they, if you're a foreigner trying to invest in China, it's a, it's a lot easier for you to put your money into China than it is for someone in China to get their money out. They have very, very tight capital controls if you want to get your money out, but it's very easy to invest in China from the outside. And this is because with the developed economy, you have... Uh, you have a big uh, vulnerability to capital outflows where money, a lot of hot money, speculative money will rush in and boost asset prices, boost markets. But then when there's like a fear or a panic, all that hot money tries to rush out. And then there's this huge, you know, problem left at the, the center of the financial system in the developing economy. So China has a very closed capital account to prevent these money flowing out. And there is a lot of money in China that wants to leave there's still capital flight that, that leaves that they can't, you know, clamp down on. There's always going to be money leaving. Mm. But for the most part, that's, that's the, the big, uh, one of the big things they try to do. Can I interrupt you quickly? Can you explain sure. to us what processes they actually do to be able to maintain a closed capital? How do they keep so, the money in there? Uh, they basically just stop the financial institutions from being able to transfer money outside it's as simple as that i'm not too sure on the exact way they do it but yeah they just don't let the financial institutions transfer money overseas okay is it like uh, the classic story of death by paperwork like you need to get 10 signatures of approval before something can go out and they can sort of hold up one of those certain signatures if they wanted to is, uh, is it things like this i'm just thinking at the granular level like how can they actually stop yeah, someone from yeah. withdrawing their money well the have a communist regime right they they can if you're if you're a friend of the party it's obviously going to be a lot easier to get money to and fro but for most people it's not really possible they limit the amount of us dollar withdrawals that people can make in their accounts um they yeah they have their very tight controls on how much money you can actually get out of the system it was some uh, last time i read it was something like ten thousand us per person I but, wonder, um, yeah. wouldn't that be almost a disincentive then for you to then invest in China in the first place? Like, how are they not getting the downside with this sort of policy? Well, and- because 
it's it's seen as a, a place of growth, right? China has grown tremendously since you know the 70s and 80s where they had a huge just lack of any sort of infrastructure you could basically just like um, put money anywhere in that economy and it would have been productive because they just had dirt roads no trains all that sort of stuff so Mm -hmm. any sort of money would have been productive and would have created growth so they have this whole growth narrative where they're seen as the engine of growth for the world. And for a long period of time, they have been. But in today's, like today's age, they are a lot more reliant on debt growth to fuel economic growth. Whereas in the 70s and 80s and 2000s, they were much more, it was much more healthy growth where it was savings and investment rather than debt and investment. Because, you know, as... Uh, when the Soviet Union was uh, seen, seen as the, the next big competitor to the US and people thought the Soviet Union was going to overtake the US to be the number one economy, mm-hmm. the, they were very rapidly growing and then they had an over-reliance on debt and then you know they went bust. Same thing with Japan. Everyone thought Japan was going to be the next big economy and... And Japan had this period of readjustment where they also had a bust and they had this period of like 20 years where returns were just horrible. So I, I think China's going down that same path, but China's a bit different is how they, they've managed their economy very well compared to uh, the Soviets. They, they have a very command and control economy because it's a communist regime and they basically anything in their domestic economy, they set the price levels, they set the amount of money in supply, the interest rates. They are, their domestic economy is completely controlled. It's when they have to interact with the rest of the world. So you basically have two spheres. You have the Chinese have like basically two currencies. You've got the onshore yuan, which is the domestic economy and domestic sphere. And then you've got the offshore yuan, which is the, currency they use to interact with the rest of the world so um in a domestic economy they it's all very tightly controlled and as long as they have enough dollars coming in u.s dollars or you are uh, u.s dollars pounds euros you know Mm -hmm. um the big international currencies as long as they have enough of them coming in then they're free to do whatever they want with the domestic economy they can expand money supply to stimulate or contract it to um lower inflation so the big thing with China is that they need the dollars coming in. And that's why they have huge current account surpluses where they've built up massive amounts of FX reserves so that they can continue to, you know, stabilize their exchange rate, stabilize their economy. Because I think the big problem with them is that if they don't have that constant inflow of dollars, being higher than that outflow of dollars, mm. then they're going to be, come into a real problem because in China, there's a huge amount of malinvestment. The banking system is like completely insolvent. Really? <laughs> Basically. Can, you, can you expand on that? On so And first yeah, so, explain what you mean by malinvestment. Yeah. So as I was saying back in the seventies and eighties, you could throw money anywhere and it would be productive, right? 
because they just had such a lack of infrastructure. But now they're at the point where they've built up a lot of infrastructure. The cities are all developed. So to get productive assets, new productive assets to grow your economy, it's a lot harder for them to do. They don't have the ability to allocate that money anywhere they want. They have to be um, very particular, but because they're so, because they basically target a growth level, right? A GDP growth level, they will use debt to hit that target. So they'll build, say, like a ghost city, right? It's a good example. They'll just build a ghost city. (laughs) I mean, Uh where's the economic productiveness in that? Very little, if any. If any. Yeah. But because they have to do this to keep that engine turning, Mm -hmm. they, they, yeah, they'll keep doing it. And the problem is that with their banking system is that for the past few decades, they've been, the banks have been basically conditioned to think that it's okay to lend to anyone without real any credit checks because the government will make you whole. Mm-hmm. You won't, you won't yeah. suffer a loss. Yeah. So what the end result of that is a, a banking system built upon moral hazard, right? <laughs> what's, what's, what's the lesson you learn if everyone's telling you, if the government's saying, look, just lend, yeah, we'll you, pay you the loss if there is any. Well, you just so, seek out riskier and riskier investment opportunities and you have less of a downside if the actual investment that you go on to pursue doesn't even ever return anything because the CCP will reimburse you because it's yeah, going exactly. towards the final figure that's hitting their GDP targets, which for them yeah. is a big way for them to flex their big dick to the rest of the world to say, look how good our economy is. We keep growing X yeah. amount every single year. Yeah, uh, it'd be good exactly. to say as well, for those who don't know what a ghost city is, it's fascinating. You should just Google it. But in a country of 1.6, 1.7 billion people, a lot of motherfucking people, there are entire cities, like giant suburbs with tall high-rise buildings that are just vacant. They're built, they're ready to go, and they're vacant. And mm. makes you scratch your head a bit because there's a lot of people in China and seemingly there should be demand for these empty apartments and so forth. But yeah, as you have explained here, it's it's simply just a, a byproduct of malinvestment. Yeah. So... Yeah, so because because anyone can get credit or it's very easy for the, the banks to just lend money out and and be made whole by the government, they have conditioned the entire banking system built upon basically moral hazard and insolvency. And so there was this regional bank called Baoshang Bank. They actually, uh, the government wanted to, try and do something about this insolvency in the banking system. They wanted to introduce this concept of uh, repercussions and bankruptcy to the banking system. So this regional bank, Baoshang Bank, they went under in 2018. Uh, The government didn't bail them out. And so what happened was that the bank-to-bank lending market. So you have a network where banks will go into the interbank lending market to seek funding from each other, usually like short-term financing. Um, the, the interbank lending market started seizing up and it, the rates skyrocketed. I think it was like something like 15% they went up to, which is very high. Um, and this was because 
every other bank was saying to themselves, well, if they're going to let them fail, you know, who's to say they're going to let another one fail? So the interest rate they were demanding from each other was so high because they all knew how bad the actual books of each other's banks were. So it ended up having to be bailed out because the tremors that it sent through the bank lending market was just risking too much of a financial contagion for the government to be just, you know, I'll just let it go. So ended up having to put the whole thing back together and bail and bail out the large depositors. And, who did and that sort of calmed the whole thing. So yeah, and problem, this is a big problem they still have that they don't really know what to do with because in the end, what happened? They bailed everybody out. What was the lesson that these large depositors and managers of the banks learned? Well, the China will too bail big to us bail. out if we fuck yeah. up. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so that's still something they don't really know how to deal with. Uh-huh. And it's a huge problem for them because at the center of any strong economy, you need a healthy banking system to transfer that sort of. Mm-hmm. Um, you need access transfer. to capital. Yeah. So that's something that I don't think, I don't think they really know how to do it. And, and then also back to the, how we were comparing GDP and how they use it to flex. Um, so when they build these ghost cities, right, in, in, say, a Western economy, what will happen is if you build infrastructure, you will uh, then reassess its productiveness later, like, say, a year later. Mm-hmm. And if you find out, say, that you built this bridge for $100 and that this bridge is only, you know, contributing $20 to the economy, it's only worth $20, then what you do is you write down that asset as a bad um, uh, malinvestment. I can't remember what the exact accounting term is, but you write down that asset mm-hmm. and that will reduce your GDP. So your GDP will go down subsequently by the value that you're writing down that asset. But in China, you don't write down these bad investments, these bad uh, assets. You continue holding them at full value, so $100. Mm-hmm. And what that means is that you've got an overinflated GDP figure, mm-hmm. whereas in the Western economy, you'll write it down and you'll get a more accurate representation of what the yeah. actual GDP is. But because China don't do this, they have huge malinvestment that is papered over yeah. by this huge fictitious GDP. Seemingly, so- they aren't fooling the professionals then, right? Like, yeah, no, seemingly uh, yeah. this would be almost well known within the industry. So, what what's the benefit of China just pumping up their own ties? Like, why do they have to hit? Is it almost for internal propaganda reasons? Like, look how good China is, we keep growing, or yeah, you know, I would say that's a part of it, yeah. And I think another part of it is also to fool a lot of the world because although. Like I've researched this and I know it. I wouldn't say a lot of people know it because a lot of people would be like, well, look, China, look at their GDP, look at how much Mm. they've been growing. They're probably going to overtake the US in 10 years. And in reality, you can't compare the US GDP with China. That's just not comparable Mm. when you look at how China accounts for their assets. It's not. Has there been some like savant accountant out there who's decided to try and uh, figure out like a real GDP for China? 
Uh, I would imagine there would be, but I, d- I don't think it's possible because it's yeah. just they're just such a too much going very, on. Very, yeah, yeah. But that, but that is a really interesting insight, actually, something I'd never heard of. The idea of not writing down your assets if they true if they prove to be far less productive than you had intended for them. Yeah, because yeah. ultimately, with any good investment, the asset should be more productive than the money that you put into it. Otherwise, why the fuck are you putting money in the first place? So yeah, yeah. Uh, is this common in other developing economies as a way to sort of fudge the books? Cause I can totally see that sort of stuff happening in, I don't know, the middle East, maybe some like sub-Saharan African countries. Yeah. Like, because maybe that's the dirty hand of China as well. Cause a lot of their investment money is in these places, but um, this is obviously a side tangent, but do you see that those sort of, is this sort of well-known that there are different countries that are adhering to very different accounting practices and it's sort of, you know, fudging the, the, the high number? I think, yeah, I think it would be more common in sort of developing economies with less uh, poorer quality accounting standards. Um, probably not as much in developed economies because, you know, you have, the big regulated borrowed bodies. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. you go if you're listed, you're being audited, like things like that are very rare to slip through. Like, there are obviously, you know, some accounting scandals here and there, but it's not the practice. Whereas in China it's that's how they do it. Yeah. Right. Um and then so the other consequence of that is that you have all these uh, assets being held at say a hundred dollars, right? Well, those assets are assets to somebody, right? Say the party or a business or whatever. Um, the true value of those assets isn't what it says on their book. So you have, you know, say maybe a hundred dollars of savings that's actually backed up by twenty dollars of assets. So it's like this Ponzi scheme, mass scale Ponzi scheme, where you have really like say twenty dollars backing up you know, a hundred dollars so that if the system was ever to contract, it would be a very bad cycle of contraction because the true value of what is worth is nowhere near what it actually says on the books, mm-hmm. which is why I think they have to manage their economy so tightly because if it was, you know, a free market, there would just be so much money that just wanted to leave. So that's this why is- they can't. This is putting the argument into question. People will say, look to China as a perfect example of why capitalism is the ultimate system. And we don't have to argue about whether capitalism is or isn't, but it sounds like that's, uh, this sort of proves that argument wrong because they they don't have a free market at all. They have a, a completely manufactured economy, which they get to decide which numbers to write up and which numbers to write down. Uh, it seems very uh, unsustainable. Um, and maybe this is something that we're going to get into a little bit, but could China's accelerated aggression recently explain their in- unstable economy? Because seemingly if they had such an amazing economy that was growing every um, year on year, relative to the rest of the world, they wouldn't need to enforce any sort of aggression because they would just naturally become the superpower over time. But maybe because of their unsustainable GDP model, they're not actually going to become the superpower 
uh, on the route that they're going. And therefore it justifies why there might be more aggression now to try and compensate to almost grab the power before it all caves in. You know where I'm going with this? Is yeah, it, is yeah. this a, you know, <laughs> uh, that's, that's a good, that's no, that's a really good point. Um, short answer. I, I don't really know the answer to that, but I, I, I do agree that they, everything they do is very calculated and for a reason. Uh, it could be just purely because the the US started aggression with China trade war. And so China started retaliating with more aggression back. Um, China are a very, a very proud country, right? They're not going to back down, right? They're going to, uh, they're going to fight back. So, yeah, I, I do see that as possible. Um, but I, I just, yeah, I, I wouldn't be able to, I wouldn't be able to tell you, to be honest. Okay. So um, you, you started off by saying, what was it? The, the impossible economy or something like that? Uh, the, the impossible trinity. Yeah. The impossible so, trinity. And so we had the closed capital accounts. We had um, different accounting practices. And what was the third bucket there? So, yeah. So it was a, it was basically you, you can target any two of the three an open okay. capital account, which they don't. So they have a closed capital account. So they target yeah. the other two where they have a independent uh, monetary policy. They, they don't. And what that means is they don't uh, set their level of interest rates based upon the country that they're, they're pegged to. So mm-hmm. they peg their dollar, their, their currency to the dollar. They try to maintain a band for the, for the yuan to the dollar. Yeah. Um, but they, they don't, uh, follow any other country's interest rate regime. They have their own freedom to raise and lower interest rates as they will, because they've chosen to close their capital account instead. Because if they chose to have an open capital account, then difference and and they did manage their their exchange rate, then capital would flow freely out of them, seeking uh, higher rates of return. So they would need to close their capital account. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, a typical sort of framework to look at developing economies. What does this mean for China on the global stage and how they interact with other economies around the world? Is there, do you have much knowledge on this or maybe where they're investing internationally? Uh, yeah, so they, they have to interact with the rest of the world, right? Because they have, we have, well, the rest of the world has the minerals, materials, the food, the supplies they need to you know create production and and uh so and, you know to feel the, people. the the activity yeah yeah so they do this all through the us dollar system right and to them the they don't want to be uh beholden to the us dollar based system because if you want to be a competitor to the US, and it's pretty clear at this point that China and the US are in a power struggle, right? Mm-hmm. That it's pretty, you can't use the US dollar based system. For example, Iran has been a pretty good example of this where the US has told them not to enrich uranium, not to develop nuclear weapons, but Iran has sort of fought that and tried to follow their, their own um, uh, nuclear program. So the US imposed sanctions on them going back to, I think, the 80s. Yeah. And the US sanctions are so crippling when they use them in full force that Iran's economy basically just went to crap. They 
uh, imposed sanctions by using the US dollar based global payment system called SWIFT. So if you were uh, suspected of or caught um, importing Iranian oil, then the US would sanction your banks and you would be basically cut off from the system. Mm-hmm. The and like that if you want to do business, trade internationally anymore through different currencies well, through through dollars through dollars and because you know something like 70 percent of global trade is settled in dollars it's pretty big blow to iran sure. to not be able to partake in this network mm-hmm. so china and russia have seen what this did to iran and they realize that if they are going to be competitors to them. They it needs to be a new financial system, one that isn't revolved around the US dollar. So I think that's the biggest thing that China is trying to achieve going forward is to either develop a new financial system or just have the current one break to the point where it's in everybody's incentive to get off this dollar-based system and develop a new one right Mm. and if that is the case well then a country the u.s can't spend something like you know 700 billion dollars on defense because the way that works is that everybody uses the u.s dollar so the u.s can run a deficit of a trillion dollars and it'll be absorbed for the most part because there's a need for dollars to transact and have reserves in the rest of the world so the u.s is basically funding its military budget at the rest of the world's expense okay and yeah and and that's how it's worked for the past 80 or so years and just Um, to unpack that quickly when you say the u.s military its budget is funded by at the rest of the world's expense by that you mean in a US annual budget, say whatever 50% of that that is ended up allocated to the military, that is borrowed from the rest of the world. In you know, in the annual tax receipts that the US government yeah. gets, say whatever it is, $500 billion from the company taxpayers and the individual taxpayers, that actually isn't enough money for America to then fund their own budget. So they will borrow. And you, what you're saying is that the the 50% that they're borrowing because it's going straight into the military, it is essentially funded by the rest of the world, but it's still money yeah. owed, right? Yeah. So it, it, I don't know the exact numbers, but yeah, the general concept of it is that the U S runs deficits because they need to supply the rest of the world with the dollars they need to transact with each other and the reserves they need to transact with each other. So the U S dollar, the U S government will borrow so they will borrow dollars from the rest of the world in order to uh, fund its own, you know, military. Yes, they do, you know, social security, infrastructure, like- Oh, everything sort of else, but, yeah. But yeah, I'm pretty sure yeah, 50% yeah. of the American budget annually is dedicated to military. That might be, as I say, it sounds like too much, but I swear I've heard that number thrown it, around it, before. It's, it is, yeah, right? It's a huge amount. I, I'm That's not a sure crazy right, amount. Yeah. And then you've no wonder got- they're so you've got, fucking big. Yeah, and then you've got interest expense, which is the interest they've, they, that's probably, I think, number, it's in the top five of their government expenditure, <laughs> yeah, which yeah. is just, and it's funny because Paying interest rates are, debt. yeah, interest rates are at like, you know, record lows, right? Yeah. 
but interest expense is still such a huge expense to the the U.S. government. So, and then you know, on their income side, they've got all, all their taxable income, and they've got the capital gains. And this goes into a bit of a tangent about the state of the U.S. fiscal situation. Is it's actually not that far away from a crisis because so much of U.S. government income is in the form of taxable capital gains mm. through stocks, the stock market, right? Yeah, yeah. So I, I, we do we do have questions about this after after China. We'll definitely go into it. All right, we'll, we'll, all right, we'll go we'll go into that later. Okay. Yeah. 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 But yeah, so yeah, that's that's a big reason as to where China wants to go in the future and what their sort of goal is to do is to have a new financial system be brought upon by necessity because the current one is broken and the current one is pretty fundamentally broken this us dollar based one um so that it sort of equalizes the balance of power in the world mm-hmm. where the us can't you know flex their reserve currency status mm-hmm. to be able to borrow hundreds of billions of dollars a year and throw a lot of that into military sure yeah how how could china and say russia as well although i would say that russia is almost a overinflated geopolitical piece of the puzzle you know i think they're um a lot scarier than they actually might be but what can china do to create that system for themselves does it essentially just mean that people start uh, settling a lot of their international transactions in one rather than usd or is there well, a middle currency coming in here there would have to be a middle like the euro currency method yeah the euro because although china say they want the yuan to be a global currency their actions show otherwise because if you want if they wanted the yuan to be a global currency then they wouldn't uh, have such tight capital controls and two they would need a better banking system than they have and because their banking system is insolvent, they it can't handle huge global flows, right? It, it just mm-hmm. wouldn't cope. Their financial system <laughs> isn't mature enough and rigid, uh, isn't anti-fragile enough to put it one way to, to be able to cope with all that. It would just, it would be a nightmare. So they say that they want the UN to be global, but it doesn't look like they're doing anything about that in the short term. So it would have to be some new system, maybe a, a, a gold-based system. That um, I've heard talks about that, but yeah, it do wouldn't you, be yuan-based. Do you? See- yeah. So yeah, whether or not it's gold or not, I don't know. That's just me putting it out there as like a oh, okay. possible solution, right? So yeah, it, it 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 I do see it tending that way. The current way the system, the current state of the system looks like it's sort of fracturing where right now we have a monopolar system where it's the US dollar and then somewhat Euro and then basically nothing else. Mm. The way it looks like it's heading is it's going to be like a, a US dollar based uh, region. Then there's going to be possibly a Euro based region and then possibly an Eastern region that uses whatever currency, maybe even the Yuan in the Eastern region. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's fracturing from monopolar into bipolar, tripolar type of, currency system and yeah what are the implications of that well for one the u.s hegemony is 
going to decline because if mm -hmm. there's a lower demand for US dollars, the US then they can't borrow as fund feverishly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and then fund their own stuff. Yeah. yeah. So it would be, you know, a much more uh, dynamic global order than the current, you know, 80 years we've had where it's been the US and that's it. And I suppose the uh, the implications of a more dynamic global order is more wars, essentially, chaos and battles and fighting for territory and fighting for power, right? Mm, yeah, yeah, potentially, yeah. If, like if the US the, all of a sudden US... doesn't have the the money to fund its military and its military shrinks considerably, well, then all of a sudden there's going to be grabs on power where people wouldn't have otherwise have done it before you know i'm thinking of yeah. europe <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah well yeah that's the thing and that's why china themselves had a plan of say china 2049 that's that, that that's their vision it's not china 2020 because they know at current you know rates they can't you know win a kinetic conflict with the US. It's, it's not possible. So China's plan is to outgrow the US over the next, say, 20, 30 years so that they will have a more modernized military than the US will be able to fund in 20, out, 30 years. Outgrow their, their military. Military, well... Because haven't yeah, we established economic, that their economy is almost on a house of cards. Like it's, it, you, it might not necessarily be able to outgrow an American economy. Yeah. Yeah. That's, well, that's the thing, you know, that that's my, that's my opinion, whether or not that's what they think right. and what they've planned right, right, right. could be two different things. And I also could be wrong about that. So, um, but yeah, that's their plans to modernize their military over this span of time. So that, at that time, the U.S.'s military will be a lot more, say, like a dinosaur compared to what a modern military in 2049 or 2050 would look like. Mm. So you're envisioning like an inflection point where the, the U.S. has X military capability and China has Y military capability and they slowly come and then 2049, they sort of meet this point where they have equal capacity. Well, me myself, no, but I think that's that's what I've read about what their sort of strategic plan is. I, yeah. I don't think that's possible. I think China has sort of shown their hand too early in a way that they've shown themselves to be hostile to the current mm -hmm. sort of democratic free world system too early at a point where they still need the rest of mm -hmm. the world and perhaps far more imperialistic than they would have liked people to know yeah exactly and it shows in how a lot of western uh economy uh, countries are sort of their perception about the chinese government and how they've handled the past two years right mm -hmm. so i i think maybe they have overplayed their hand and there could be repercussions this year, next year, down the line in terms of mm. how friendly or how trade relations go, you know, in Australia, we've sort of picked a fight with China and they've fought back. Right. So whether or not that um, 
evolves into actual like action by the Australian government to diversify its um, economic reliance on China and then the rest of the world to do the same thing to move away from its reliance on China remains to be seen but that's definite possibility considering how they've shown themselves to be on the global mm-hmm. scale interesting that segues perfectly into uh two questions that i had for you for china um, you tell me which way you want to take them australia is i think the most dependent country on china in the world right we must be yeah we're definitely up yeah. there was covid19 good or bad for China? Because I've seen online people uh, like, for instance, Naval Ravikant, for example, like m- big influential voice in the financial Twitter space. He has said that um, COVID-19 is good for China, right? Just geopolitically and what their ambitions are. Whereas I can't see why it was necessarily a good thing for them because one of the main um, outcomes of the of the of COVID-19 going throughout the world was people realized that their supply chains were far too reliant on one single country, you know? So irrespective of whether it was malicious or not from China, the fact that this virus came and trade shut down, everyone started scratching their heads and thinking, fuck, you know, we can't even get masks. We can't even get these very uh, simple to manufacture goods into our own country. And what I think that's going to do is when the dust settles, because we're still in this, but it will make it will force companies to reconsider their uh, supply chains, and it doesn't mean a simple shift from say China to Malaysia or China to Thailand, but it will just be more of a shift locally and maybe a more diversified supply chain as well, offering maybe the exact same component could potentially come from two different places, which naturally rises the cost of the final good that we get, but. I can see this as being a manufacturing trend, which is very bad for China, because that is part of what you're saying. It does weaken the reliance that people have on the Chinese manufacturing hub of the world. Uh, do you do you buy that argument at all? What, what, where do you lie on was COVID good or bad for China? Yeah. Uh, I, I don't. Short answer is I wouldn't. I can't really tell you because it's. But you can speak from yeah from from what I think I would think it's bad just purely because I think the reaction function of all these other countries of how they've seen how China's handled this past year they would associate it with like poor you know you wouldn't expect that from such a global player if they were like a cooperative you know global player on that stage on that stage right so. I think whether or not that translates into government action is yet to be seen because I'm pretty sure Merkel just signed a new trade deal with China like a few days ago, right? So whether or not that actually translates into action where governments incentivize companies to shift to uh, say Vietnam, other countries is, I don't, I don't actually know, but I, I would expect that that would be the case. But in terms of where I do see it being good for China is just at how much chaos it has caused in these Western economies and how much just economic destruction, right? And it's made worse by the fact that 
the governments have decided to just go really big with the stimulus and try and paper over the cracks, right? Mm. They've printed trillions of dollars to try and paper over this wall of cracks, but underneath that wall, there's really some rotten flesh. It's, yeah. it's very bad. And instead of letting the free market sort it out and the strongest live and the weakest die, they just throw trillions of dollars at it to make mm. sure that everybody sort of gets their money and that's only going to make it worse in the long run because if you let these zombies live longer than they should it's just going to weaken your economy even further over Mm -hmm. the long run and that's where i think china it has actually been good for china because being such a authoritarian regime they're able to you know lock down sectors and stop movement of people stop movement of the virus much more effectively than say a western country that's going through an election year with riots and protests and all that sort of stuff so yeah this might be a bit of a tangent um and maybe we don't have to go down to too much but you told me to read the fourth turning and so i did uh, in the last couple of uh, days basically I listened to what this book tells you, which is a very sort of compelling, convincing argument, but hard to completely swallow for me at least. And then you, and then I look at Ray Dalio and the way he talks about cycles, long-term debt cycles and short-term debt cycles. I'm like, wow, that's very interesting. Because you just said, well, why didn't America just uh, adopt the, the free market response to COVID-19, which would have been let the strongest survive and let the weakest die? And it could just be a simple matter of the case that America was never going to do that. And any, in my opinion, moral Western nation would never let that happen because you have a responsibility. Now, this is, you know, now getting into an argument over capitalism again, but you have a responsibility to people that are part of your nation that they can thrive. Now you can you can't determine how much they thrive, but you have a responsibility that they can thrive, and 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 so therefore, America tr- prints trillions and trillions of dollars, and it makes you think: th- Is this the end of an era, an ion, an epoch? Is this literally just cycles playing out again, and we're just at the end of this American cycle? You know, um, I know it's a bit of a tangent, but I don't know if you had any comments on that. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to think that it's not, but. To me, it seems that we have sort of seen the peak of the American empire. And my sort of rationale for that is purely from an economic sense. And just in terms of, I think, to me, I think the the big reason where the US is the superpower is because of the US dollar and how they turned it into a global system that everybody needed. And the US dollar, its share of global settlement, trade and reserves has been declining over the past decade. And I don't see any reason for that trend to change, right? There's so many questions about the ability of the US government to pay back its debt, Um, you know, questions about the actual uh, functionality of the current dollar-based system and how well it actually works when you get into these sort of crisis events. Um, like, for example, a developing economy would hate the US dollar, right? Because during their crisis, they borrow a lot of, do- they borrow a lot of money in dollars. And then when they have a crisis, their currency drops and the real value of all their money that they borrowed 
goes up even further, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of incentive from other countries to sort of change the current system. Um, so I do see that sort of trend continuing in the future. And I think that the power of the US is largely a function of like the dollar and how able they are to um, borrow and, you know, borrow the world's expense in dollars and fund their military. So that's, yeah, that's one way I sort of see it, but I also don't really see China overtaking them. Maybe they'll come closer to them, but it just goes to show that the world isn't going to become isn't going to be a monopolar world going forward. It's going to be bipolar, tripolar world where yeah. you've got these regions that, you know, you won't just have the US that has global influence, global power. It'll be one country in one region controlling it, maybe another country in another region and controls it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Do you want to, did you have anything conspiratorial that uh, you wanted to explore or not really? Uh, you know, I don't, I don't really... I mean, I'm sure I couldn't think of any off the top of my head. Mm. I, didn't, I didn't give much, much thought though, because I just thought about it. I'm like, uh, I don't, I don't, can't think of anything. But do no, you have good. anything you'd like to like ask about? Like the main conspiracy you could talk about is was uh, the uh, was COVID cooked in a lab and intentionally released yeah, on the yeah. populace? Um, yeah, yeah. But I don't know well, if that's yeah. what you're talking about. Uh, I think the relevant part of that is their reaction to it, right? Whether or not it was cooked up in a lab, you'll never know. But the relevant part is how they continued to allow movement of people and deny in and out of the country and deny it and suppress Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And that goes back to their credibility on a global scale as one of the big players and how do other countries, you know, interact and Mm -hmm. try and have a relationship with, you know, someone who acts like that. Yeah. Um, There's also... Something I've been getting into quite a bit recently is more big infrastructure projects and how they sort of work at a geopolitical level. I'm not sure if you've read Confessions of an Economic Hitman or heard of it. And then this other book, I've Prisoners of, of it, Geography. Yes. Uh, have, have you read it? Yeah, just in the last few days. Uh, really, uh, what's his name? John Perkins. I think John Perkins is his name. Really interesting. Really fucking interesting. Yeah. After reading that, and then I saw this project mentioned in another book, Prisoners of Geography, which was this uh, Chinese plan to build a canal through Nicaragua, right? And I just think that this singular infrastructure project, it, it it speaks a lot about the ambition of China, but also the kind of malintent of China, okay? Because there is, and this canal is one project which, is also happening, say, for instance, in the Himalayas, like China's building loads of dams uh, and restricting water that comes into India, for instance. They've got their pores all throughout Africa. Like China will invest in, in countries where other countries might not invest because condition, conditionality to the investment is working with you know, uh, bad people, really, really bad people. And when the West uh, turns their nose at it and says, no, this person is terrible, we're not going to support them at all, even though it would be a nice financial return, um, China's sort of going in there anyway. But nonetheless, that, that's, that, that's not relevant to the Nicaragua case. It's very interesting if you want to hear about it. Have you heard of it? The canal that they plan to build in Nicaragua? 
No, I haven't. Okay, so in 2014, this guy, Wang Jin, uh, he uh, won a contract with his brand new company, the Hong Kong Nicaragua Development Company, uh, to build a canal through Nicaragua. And it just, it, it was it was really interesting to learn about this because it bleeds economic hitman, but it also bleeds bad mal Chinese intention. Basically, they, you know, they go in and they promise that, this project is going to double your, your GDP, right? Look at Panama and look at their canal and look what it did for them. Um, it's going to double GDP. We're going to give jobs to loads of people here. All these people that have to get relocated because we're cutting a fucking line through your country. All these people that need to get relocated, we'll take care of them. They're going to be better off in these places anyway. Uh, don't worry about the environmental damage. We're going to, we've got all the best scientists, all the best geologists. We're going to make sure that nothing bad happens, right? All the nonsense, all the all the big promises that you're given, and then you're sitting there as the as the the person in power in Nicaragua, and you're like, well, yeah, that sounds good. This is going to be good for me politically. Maybe it's going to be good for my uh, people. And this is taking the best case scenario, assuming he's not a corrupt and he's not just thinking, oh, that's lots of money for me and my cronies. Best case scenario, he's thinking, this is good for my people. This is good for my country. Good. Look what happened in look what happened in Panama. Wow, that could also happen to us here. Anyway, so. Total cloak and daggers because this guy insists, Wang Jin, that the CCP is absolutely nothing to do with this. This is just him out finding a really good investment opportunity in Nicaragua. And you sort of roll your eyes at that because obviously it's not the case. And when I thought about it more, it became a very, uh, it became another example of almost malintent at the international level from China. Because why can't they just go through the Panama Canal like fucking everybody else, right? And then they use the uh, an excuse that well China is beginning <clears throat> building uh, wider and deeper tankers like fucking giant ships, uh, which actually can't fit through the Panama Canal. Um, but and it's like okay, well that makes sense. I guess I need to build a new one. But well, no, that's not really the case because in Panama they're expanding the canal to fit for all these new ships. And so then it becomes well, why can't China just go through the Panama Canal like everyone else? If China starts imposing themselves more upon the world more than they already are and sanctions aren't enough it can get to the point where it's like well no you can't cross through the panama canal which is a huge massive disruption on trade because then they've got to go all the way down past antarctica almost to get um over to europe uh, so so it's interesting because now china is like well we're just going to build our own fucking canal and that says a lot because that says that one they almost anticipate that they're going to be doing stuff that is going to have the consequence of them not being able to go through a canal, for example. Um, and they're willing to do this project, which for example, would cut through Lake Nicaragua and you know, for sure that it's not going to go to plan. It'll be over budget. It'll be late. And there'll be way more environmental catastrophe than they say, you know, you can't just, you can't just chop a line into a, into a lake and then another line into a lake and have a hot and a cold sea ocean. <laughs> like it'll leak into it. It'll, it'll completely destroy this super biodiverse place in the world. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a rainforest essentially in Nicaragua. So um, <clears throat> I just, I, I thought in the context of talking about China, that was worth saying, but uh, it's really, yeah. very interesting. <laughs> yeah, no, there will the whole sort of Belt and Road Initiative just uh, is basically just a network of influence, right? They're just trying to expand this sort of trade routes all along the world 
because it's just influence, right? Mm. And a lot of what they do is they'll go, all right, we'll build a port here or an airstrip or, and we'll give, we'll let you borrow money from us. Um, then, you know, that's the classic sort of debt trap where they give too much money to the local government. The local government can't repay the loan. So then China just comes in and takes possession of the infrastructure, mm-hmm. the port, whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. And often they'll um, put in large amounts of their own people to come and build these things. So it's not like it's even local like fully local workers right so yeah the only local jobs are the laborious ones that don't teach you a new skill that you can though go then reapply elsewhere short term purely transactional all the engineers you know all the all the highly skilled work is going to be brought in exactly and that doesn't contribute to their economy at all yeah yeah exactly yeah so yeah like uh it's 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 worked for them, but I don't know if it's going to continue working. Mm-hmm. Uh, before we talk about Australia, do you have anything to say about the Taiwanese question? This is one that I mm. hold very close to my heart. I think it's uh, going to be the biggest political event in our generation when China yeah, eventually imposes I, I do, themselves I, on I, Taiwan. I agree as well. And the US has been very you know, quick to show that it acts like it doesn't want to mess around with Taiwan and the U S is sort of, uh, you know, flexing on China, Mm -hmm. sending out ambassadors and stuff. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think Taiwan and Taiwan is a very strategic, important place because it's where all the semiconductors are made. Right. So China has very keen importance. um, And they're also Taiwan, like the, they're the stronghold of the South China sea. Uh, mm. which is which has a lot of other significance for other reasons but yeah like china's been slowly yeah. encroaching on a bunch of other key points but taiwan really is the the headquarters that you almost need to have um yeah 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 i saw i saw a funny tweet that trump should just recognize taiwan just to fuck with the world before he, <laughs> before he leaves which one yeah. hilarious yeah but yeah, um, I, yeah but yeah no I, I do agree i think it's gonna i think it's gonna go the same way as hong kong where you know now they're having i think it was just last week they had like a whole bunch of like it was like 50 or something arrests for pro-democracy people in in hong kong and it's just becoming more and more you know shut down and controlled yeah what's australia's future here because i don't remember but i remember from i don't know what it is now but i remember from university almost something like 60 percent of our export of our um exports went to china uh so it's uh it's like 34 it's around 34 percent of our exports go to china and China are in the process of trying to diversify their minerals. So they're trying to secure things with Brazil and lock them down. Problem right now is just Brazil's going through COVID pretty badly. So they don't have up and running manufacturing capability as they would normally because COVID's hit them really hard. But that's what China's trying to do. They're trying to diversify from Australia because they're trying to teach us a lesson just as we're trying to, you know, teach them a lesson. And I think the net end result is, is really bad for Australia because we have stood up to the bully, right? And we've 
we've gone to them and told them, you know, we want a global inquiry. But unless it's like a united front and there's more than just Australia saying, hey, this has got to stop or we want to know what happened, we're like an ant to China. They don't yeah, need us as much as we need them. Mm. So we're just like China's a holiday destination for them. Yeah, exactly. So China's showing that and they're trying to diversify their import base from away from Australia. Um, then you've got residential, commercial property, right? And that's also a really big one because Chinese students, Chinese um, nationals and just Chinese uh, ownership of properties is was something like it was like something like 20 billion in 2017 and that's maybe halved since then or gone down a lot um especially when at a time like this when our property market is arguably a bubble who knows <laughs> um but I've been saying that for as long as we've been alive <laughs> yeah exactly exactly but um it's it's not good because we the reason we didn't go into recession in 2008 while well, pretty much the rest of the world did was because when everybody else was crashing, China went pedal to the metal on growth and they, they stimulated us out of recession. So at a time like this, when global growth is slowing down and we, uh, we and our biggest trading partner are becoming more at odds with each other. It's, it's not, really great for the Australian economy. And I don't really have much positivity. Yeah. As sad it is to say about, you know, the short do we, future. Do we have any, I, as you know, I haven't lived in the country for a long time, but do we have any sort of alternative? No. Atlassian's a massive company. Canva's a massive company. These are Sydney-based tech is the idea of Sydney or Australia pivoting into a tech hub, a bit of a, like, you know, like, or, or maybe for instance, I also heard because of the exodus out of Hong Kong, Sydney could transition to a financial services hub. Like, I think, um, do you think these things are realistic? Because what's Australia going to do if a significant amount of our income is slowly whittled away at, because we're a country that relies on, a lot of welfare, like we need a lot of tax receipts for our country to operate, you know? Mm, yeah, no. Yeah, I, I I, think the, I think Singapore would be more likely to become the Hong Kong sort of financial oh, yeah, hub yeah. of Asia. But um, yeah, it, it's hard to say. I, I just, I, I don't know if it, you know, we could transform our economy into like a tech services based economy that quickly is pretty, It'd be a pretty tough transition. I think we would still, you know, continue to do the, you know, minerals and resources, just purely because like the com- the companies and the firms that are in power, right? The those big uh, natural resource companies have gotten so big that they influence political decisions, right? And it's very much in their interest to keep the status quo. They don't want the economy to shift to say a tech-based services economy because then power is redistributed from them to these new tech companies, right? 
Let's move on to the infinite stimulus. So I heard this the other day and I don't know if it's true or not. I didn't double check, but maybe you can tell me what you think. I heard that as much as, as much of, I heard that as much as 25% of all the money ever created was created in 2020. Oh, Does this sound a, right to a, you? I mean, it doesn't sound not right, to be honest, when you look at how much money yeah. the Fed, the ECB, the BOJ, like they all just went insane on the printing press. So, so yeah, this mean, like, even to a child who knows jack shit sounds unsustainable, right? Yeah. What's actually going on here? Can you explain this for me? Well, yeah, it's the, it's the, you know, it's the natural response of all these policymakers who just want things to be okay during their watch. They don't want the shit to really hit the fan while they're in power. They want it to be someone else's problem, right? So they all did what they thought necessary to stave off probably one of the worst financial crises in over, you know, probably a hundred years. So, mm. so despite all the malinvestment and zombie companies that had been brewing over the past 10 years, because interest rates were kept at so such low levels, they decided that they would need to print trillions and trillions because sorry to interrupt it- you, but I think that's actually a really interesting point. You might be able to open up more. You said, because of low interest rates, there are zombie companies. So just to explain that, basically it means if if, yeah. if John creates a company and he has access to cheap cash, which means really low interest rates, which means he essentially will pay back whatever he borrows without all the interest on top of it. He can then go on to create a company that isn't actually very profitable at all. And it can continue to live by either debt funding or just on the, um, on the break point. And that is what you're referring to as like a zombie company, right? And in a good yeah. economic, healthy climate, that company wouldn't have survived anyway. And therefore it would be less of a burden when a big crash like this comes along. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And then, and that's exactly what a big crash like this is supposed to do. It's supposed to weed out those types of companies. But yeah. because they felt that they wanted to print all this money because it was necessary to save a lot of business and, you know, a lot of businesses that were healthy and good probably would have been destroyed because of this as well, which makes Mm -hmm. it such a harder decision in the first place. But I think a lot of it comes from the fact that they don't want to be the ones responsible for everything going to shit on their watch. They want it to be someone else's problem. And that's why Greenspan, um, he was longest serving chairman at the Fed, resigned when he did before the 2008 crisis because he didn't want to be the one <laughs> holding that bag when it blew up, you know? Yeah. So Such I empty sacks, big... mate. Politicians like just reek. I mean, yeah. did you agree? Yeah. Yeah. Like it, it's, it's self-interest yeah. over everything else always. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, to go back to what we were talking about, that's one thing that say the Chinese communist party has that, so Western, mm, a Western true. democracy, that democracy doesn't do as good. It's that long-term strategic planning where they have, you know, Xi was elected president for life back in like 2015 or 16 or something. Mm-hmm. And um, he can set out these long-term strategic plans because 
he knows what he wants to do and he knows that there's not going to be, a, you know, four years time, there's going to be a new president or a new prime minister. Right. So it does create some other like instabilities, you know, because you have all this power controlled by one person. If something happens to that one person, then there's going to be a huge power vacuum, right. With terms of the 25% of all the world's money, which is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. But the, and what's crazier is they're probably nowhere near even finished. They've, probably done a fraction of what they need to and from what i've read that the u.s the reason why the u.s needs to print so much more is because of the amount of money that they have promised to their retirees so in australia we have the traditional superannuation system which is a um, defined contribution system where we contribute our money to this plan and the plan invests money for us and it's our money it's yeah. just being invested by someone else yeah. but in the u.s they have something called defined benefit plan where the company owns the money it's their money and they invest it for you and then they promise you say eight percent a year based on this hypothetical balance which is made up by actuaries so it's like based upon your length in years at the company your final salary and a whole bunch of other actuarial assumptions and they pay you out this until you die. So the defined contribution, defined benefit plan in the US is so heavily underfunded. And a large part of that is because of what happened after 2008 when interest rates went to the floor. A lot of these pension systems and pension plans couldn't get the return they needed to satisfy their liability. So you've got, so you've got the assets that they have to invest and then you've got the liabilities. The problem is that there just wasn't enough <clears throat> growth in the assets that the pensions have to invest in, which are traditionally low risk, you know, bond type assets. Yeah. So the returns on these went down. Meanwhile, the liabilities kept going up. And the problem is you have this, this gap and compounding works great, right? Well, it works even it looks exactly the same on the downside. It compounds, compounds, compounds. So it's the point where they have to kind of have to print like tens of trillions of dollars to satisfy all these obligations that they've promised their retirees. That's why I don't think they're, I don't think they've printed anywhere near what their final number is going to have to be. Trillions though, because trillions. what is the annual US budget? Uh, not too sure. And let me Google it quickly, just because I, I think it's around a trillion. During, it depends on what type of, what year it is. But um, I read it was something like oh, 1. okay. 4. Well, the federal budget for 2020 was $4.8 trillion. Yeah, so it, it depends on the year. Like this year, they obviously- 4.4 the year it. prior. So say it's around four or five. That's oh, really? the budget. Say okay. 30, 30% of it goes towards, I don't know, welfare payments and included in the welfare payments is the retiree payments. Does it have to be trillions and trillions or more? Couldn't it just be billions and that fulfills that? Or am I, am I missing something here? It, because I suppose the bigger question I'm asking is they can print it all, right? They can, they can print the money and can. give it to people. Yeah. But what is this, why are we not seeing hyperinflation from this just dumping of new money? And then also, 
how much truth is there to it that if they just reinvest this into their own economy, things are going to become hunky-dory again? Um, the, the reason why it's not just caused massive amounts of inflation is it's pretty... Inflation is a very interesting concept in where it's very... It's psychological, right? It's purely a psychological thing, I think, anyway, because... Well, it can't be purely. There, there are objective measures to it, right? Well, these objective measures are flawed. Like, you know, we, we use CPI. They use PCE in the US. They're flawed because they, they say inflation was, what, like 1.6% over the past few years. But in reality, you've got education... Food, uh, healthcare, all these things have gone up way faster than so they're they're completely flawed. They don't know how to measure inflation, and whether or not they don't know or they purposefully choose to lower it, uh, mm-hmm. who knows? But it's one or the other. And what I mean by that, it's a psychological, maybe not purely psychological, but what I mean by it's a very psychological thing is that it's not. It, it's got this sort of uh, George Soros calls it reflexivity. It's basically like a positive feedback loop where if everybody is doing it, then you have that feedback loop where everybody doing it causes the value of the money to inflate, which means that everybody will get rid of their money faster, which means it inflates more. So it's that, that sort of reflexive feedback loop. Um, that's why it's psychological in my mind because it's that point at which confidence is lost and confidence is basically a psychological thing. The only reason you would accept $100 for doing a job for someone is because you have confidence that that $100 is worth what you like, what, what you think it is, right? You would accept that because you have confidence in that money. Well, inflation is that loss of confidence. So it's like a psychological phenomenon, if you get what I mean. Yeah. No, I don't follow exactly, but that's okay. Let's uh, let's try um, the follow-up to that, which is: does spending the does reinvesting the money that you're giving that you're being given in stimulus actually go to reinvigorate the economy, or is there a little bit of myth work behind that as well? Well, it it does. But I mean, I think to reinvigorate the economy truly, you need the busts. You need the busts to weed out all the unhealthy, poor, you know. And then encourage right? all the investment when prices are cheap. Exactly. There's there's opportunity for new business when other businesses go out of business, right? It encourages people to be like, oh, look, there's there's no business here. There should be a business in this sort of, you know, area, like. I'm going to create a new business and it stimulates, right? And it has the Mm. feedback, works through the economy. But because they just throw all this money at it and allow it to sort of continue on, like it's just not the right way to go about Mm. it, in my opinion. Yeah, It, it, it does feel like they're essentially you did say perfectly before putting the tape over like rotten corpses or carcasses they're d- delaying an inevitable crash mm. Mm. that's what they're doing yeah because mm. japan so in japan 
they in the 1990s they had their bust and then they tried to do QE around 2000 and what that manifested as is just a period of lost decades where you had about two two and a half decades of just pathetic weak anemic growth and you know just a, like a few months ago the the Nikkei reached the level that it had back in 1990 it took that long to get back to even to that point so one way or another it's going to either delay or just be a you know very bad period in history for yep. like economic activity fascinating stuff marconi um is it worth playing any sort of guesswork and predictive predicting looking into the future i don't know it's it's obviously fun to do but uh, yeah do you wanna... i mean yeah well i think i don't i mean last time we spoke i was waiting for another crash and i was sure that the us dollar was going to continue to strengthen and since then i've been like dead wrong <laughs> the us dollar has weakened and markets just went continued straight higher right mm. so i mean it's humbling because you know i was like dead wrong and i um i didn't really i guess i didn't really i did learn a lot about that which is great but in terms of going forward um i still think that the us dollar is going to go through a period of strength and that's purely a function of a sort of you know market turmoil because mm-hmm. I don't think I don't think we've seen the end of this sort of, you know, period of market turmoil where the S and P or you know the ASX is just going to continue going on as it is. I think it's more than likely going to have another another period of like a crash. Who knows how long that lasts or when that comes? I'm I'm thinking it's probably sooner rather than later this year. So basically with the US treasury market, um, the yield curve is seen as like a really uh, great indicator for, you know, crashes, right? Everyone talks about the yield curve inversion, but traditionally it's the yield curve steepening after inversion that signals impending turbulence in the markets. And right now that's what we're seeing because the long end of the US curve, which is like 10 years, 20 years is starting to to rise so you've got the inversion then you've got the steepening and then the steepening is often when you've got a crash not far off so that's why i think we're not too far off another crash i mean i've got i've got a i've got a chart that it's got like it shows you really well I'll send it to you if you want to have a look at it, but it's, it's oh nice. Pretty... Maybe maybe we'll share it with the people. Get a bit of a macro voices thing going here. Get the people can go through <laughs> with the charts. Yeah, oh, it's cool. just one chart. It's great. I'll show you. Um, you'll you'll say oh, nice. Uh, look, we're coming towards the end of the time. I've got one one fun question that I want to ask. Um, sure, but sure. let's just make sure that we haven't left anything on the table in terms of China and infinite stimulus is there something that wasn't touched that you think might have been worth speaking about well this infinite stimulus is only going to be a function of inflation right they're not going to infinitely stimulate if inflation actually is a concern 
right? Why, like, they, if inflation is a concern, then that's all the central bankers want. They, they want inflation. They, they've wanted it for the past 10 years and they're going to continue trying to get it. And that's why they're, they're trying a new route where it's fiscal policy that's doing all of the heavy lifting and monetary policy is just sort of backing it, right? And that's when they'll probably stop when, they, when and if they do get the inflation that they so desperately want. All right. Cheers, Marcon. It was really good. No, I had fun doing it next time. Happy to do it next time as well. Nice, man.